Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And this podcast begins at the beginning, because while you might want to cross the finish line, you can't get there without starting. Thank you. I don't know if you're you're doing this movie or you're doing a, an NPR podcast, maybe of some kind. <laughs> maybe maybe this it would have been that nowadays, right? Like this could have been a six part uh, limited podcast about Sarah Polly exploring her family roots. Yeah, it probably could or would have, but I think it works really well in the form that it's in, and and we'll talk about that because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 2012. And in this episode, we are talking about our documentary pick, which is Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell, her exploration of her family roots and her own parentage that features some startling revelations about her origins um, that will just spoil, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, it's, again, 10 years sure. old, no, at least, so... You know, if uh, we, we we're not a spoiler averse. On no, no, we're not. We're not. It was interesting reading the reviews of this, like seeing some of them were very, very coy about what is really going on in this film and saying that, you know, you should discover it for yourself. And others were completely revealed everything that has happened in this movie. And which apparently I don't remember this at the time. But apparently there were some news stories, especially because this movie started by premiering at a bunch of different film festivals so that by the time it came out in wider release, um, there were a lot of reports already about um, the revelations in the film. So it was interesting to me to see that, though. Well, I mean, there was even the, the in the movie, they talk about the article that was written where they reveal what's being revealed in the movie. You know, well, so. she talks about a reporter and she begged him not to report it. And I think that actually worked like it wasn't reported before the movie was started to be shown at, at festivals. OK, well, either way, I'm glad that I the first time I saw this had did not know the reveal. I think had I known it, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. And I say that because I had seen this already. And while I still like this movie, this is one of those movies that can't recreate the impact of when you watch it for the first time. Yeah, and I feel like I almost had the opposite reaction that you did. Not necessarily about the the big reveal, which I mean, we can say the reveal, which is that Sarah Polly, the man that she grew up with as her father, is not her biological father. And uh, her mother had an affair with a man who is, in fact, her father. Um, right. But as we go throughout this story... We think it might be this person, and then it turns out to be another person, and then turns out, uh, yeah, there's, so there's a few twists and turns in there. Yeah, and so I will say a few things. One, I hate, I, not hate is the wrong word, but I have become more and more frustrated with documentaries that have twists, and I feel like that's not necessarily the best way to present your documentary filmmaking. So I kind of liked better knowing what was going on. And the other way that this movie kind of plays with the audience is that there's all this footage that looks like home videos of Sarah Polly's family. And the vast majority is not really. It is recreations. And not knowing that the first time when it is made clear toward the end of the movie really annoyed me. 
And I feel like I like the movie a lot more now knowing that, hey, these are recreations and that's okay that they're recreations. Like lots of documentaries have reenactments and recreations and whatever. It's no problem. But the fact that she kind of obscures that is annoying. And so knowing it going in, I felt like I could focus more on the film itself. So I liked it more this time, actually. You know, this is this is just classic, Josh. I don't like stories where they try to do something that I don't like that they're doing, you know. She's telling the story in her own way. It's a dramatic reenactment. I have no problem with that. She's trying to grab the emotional crux. And I'm going to disagree with you on documentaries with twists. If the twist works, then let's go for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a problem, like I said, with the idea of having dramatic reenactments. I'm just not sure why she has to obscure that that's what's going on. And there is definitely like a big reveal. You, you can't really argue that she's like, oh, well, I thought everyone would realize that it's dramatic reenactments because oftentimes in documentaries, when we have reenactments, it's very clear and you don't have to put a label on it. But she has this moment where she pulls back and shows the filming of the reenactments that's clearly meant to be like a big reveal. So she knows that it's going to be a surprise to people. And I just I found that unnecessary and distracting from the story that she's trying to tell. None of it. I mean, again, it was all to how do you make it resonate emotionally? And the story, as you're using the word obscure, is obscured by so many different uh, elements anyway. Like I said, we think it might be this person. And then it turns out to be another person that I feel like it all adds up here. I have no problem with any of these things. Yeah. I mean, and again, I liked it a lot this time because I knew those things. I think it it really, I could focus more on the emotions of it, which are really powerful um, that she's going through and that all the other people are going through. And then the reenactments are good, but I think I was able to, rather than trying to like figure something out, which is not what I'm watching a documentary for, I just was immersed in the in the the family dynamic. I mean, Josh, her mom died so young. I mean, she had to do something here to showcase her mom and that character. And obviously footage wasn't there. So she utilized these visuals along with the recorded stories of others to kind of create a fuller picture of the of the person. Right. And again, I don't have an issue with any of that. My issue is just the obscuring of what's going on, the deliberate tricking of the audience for no purpose that, to me, enhances the the story of the film. I guess that never even entered my mind. I always, uh, maybe because I had seen it before, I always knew they were reenactments. So I never thought she was trying to trick me at all. I just thought she was, you know, trying to do something to elevate her storytelling. And Josh, this is a story she tells. It is. Mm. And yeah, of mm. course, this time I knew that they were reenactments. And that's what I'm saying is that with that knowledge, I appreciated the movie more. So well, we're, we're kind of getting into some, uh, some real detail here, but uh, we can step back and note that... Uh, you want no detail in this podcast? No, no, no. I, I, think, <laughs> I think we can get into all this more later. Um, but, uh, you know, start off as we usually do looking at, at uh, how this movie was received when it came out. It grossed one well, point three. That would make sense, Jess, because we do have to start at the start, right? As you said at the <laughs> beginning of this podcast, that is where we have to start. Uh, so this movie grossed one point three million dollars at the box office. I didn't see what its budget was, and a lot of that may not be available. She worked on this for five years, and a lot of it is just 
uh, personal interactions with people, uh, maybe financed in part by herself. Personally, I don't know. But I mean, that's a that's a decent amount for what is really a niche uh, kind of film. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 2012 and played a bunch of other film festivals, including Toronto, uh, of course, which is her hometown. It was shortlisted for the Best Documentary Feature Film Oscar, but it was not nominated. I was kind of surprised because this was such a highly acclaimed film that I don't know why it didn't make the cut for the Oscars, but it did not. Mm, uh, I'm going to look that up right now. So uh, the best documentary, oh, was, wow, what a year for documentaries. The best documentary was Searching for Sugar Man, which is amazing. And I uh, actually campaigned for us to cover that in this season, which we did not. So our search for Sugar Man will have to continue. But, you know, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering had The Invisible War. Then there was How to Survive a Plague, The Gatekeepers, and Five Broken Cameras. I'm not familiar with those other three, but I mean, we knew Jiro, James of Sushi, that didn't make it either into this uh, best documentary feature of the year. So the Academy uh, Oscars, so lame. Well, I think I, I agree with you that Searching for Sugar Man is a very good film. And I haven't seen those others either, but I think there are several of those that are very topical and sort of social issue oriented, which seems like where the Oscars put their focus documentary wise a lot. So maybe that was one of the things. This is a personal film. It's not about a current event. It's not about a hot button political issue or whatever. So it doesn't attract as much attention as other movies like that. But obviously neither is searching for Sugar Man and managed to win. So I feel like it could have gotten a spot in there somewhere. Yeah. And I would say Jiro also should have gotten a spot in there. Yeah. So. You know, if we ever reboot the Oscars of 2013, Josh, these are changes we can make. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so um, this movie was highly acclaimed by critics as well. Uh, Manola Dargis in The New York Times said, Stories We Tell has a number of transparent virtues, including its humor and formal design, although its most admirable quality is the deep sense of personal ethics that frames Ms. Polly's filmmaking choices. Although it touches on intimate points, many recounted by Michael Polly in voiceover, the movie is revelatory rather than exploitative. And while the movie finally proves as much an autobiographical tale as a biographical one, Ms. Polly resists turning it into a flattering self-portrait of a young artist in search of her origins. Instead, building on the interest in narrative form that she expressed in earlier movies like Take This Waltz, she explores storytelling itself and the space between a life lived and its different, at times conflicting, representations. Well, what's interesting there to me is like she comes from this family of artists, right? Like both of her parents were actors and her mom had a casting business and her dad is a writer who often found it hard to write. And yeah, there is something to this idea of playing with how do you tell a story and in this case, uh, weaving it in a different way is important because it is um, not your traditional nuclear family. So I like that. And I think he is obviously a talented actor, but he's really good with, uh, you know, when he's reading his chapter in verse, the story that he's written, Michael is um, is a very good narrator. Yeah, he is. I mean, and he has that that kind of 
poshish. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but his his British accent feels very authoritative. The kind of voice you would expect to read you an audiobook or something like that. And uh, that definitely does that does does come across. And I mean, I agree with this review that it's not a self-aggrandizing movie. I wonder if she almost goes too far in that other direction, if she was concerned about it potentially coming off that way or narcissistic. There were times when I was hoping for more of her reaction. She gets so much emotional openness from all of her family members. And when they're talking about certain things that would have affected her deeply, we don't really get her voice and her response to how that would have felt. And and that was maybe a little frustrating to me at times. Yeah. And I also think, you know, literally, I... I think maybe every interview here is a single, right? It's all done in singles. Yeah. It might have been good to have her on camera with some of her subjects. So there could have been a back and forth that was focused on both of them as opposed to just her asking questions like, you know, so we could have gotten that opinion with um, with another character kind of inviting her into the conversation as as opposed to just her leading every conversation. Right. I think so. And there are moments where the interviewees kind of ask her something or speculate about something to her. And she generally doesn't show what her response would have been there. So, yeah, that was that was a little frustrating. And I think it could very well be that she was concerned about like, oh, I'm a famous person and this could end up looking like it's all about me. And I don't want it to be like that, but she maybe moved a little too far in the other direction. I mean, the movie's called, and I'm with you, I think it's called Stories We Tell, and she's telling the story of her family. So she is a natural, and it all really revolves around her, you know, and her mom and her dads. So, like, she is a central character. So I think that, um, you know, including herself here would have been beneficial as well. Yeah, no, I agree. So, and it's interesting, again, so here, Manola Dargis, she makes great pains in that New York Times review to not tell you what the movie is really about and not reveal any of the secrets. And then I thought it would be good to get a Canadian review. And so uh, Peter Howell in the Toronto Star lays out all the details already because, uh, of course, Sarah Polly much more famous in Canada. And so this was already like a big news story that they had reported about before doing the movie review. So I didn't include that excerpt, but he does give you every single detail uh, of, of the real events that the movie lays out. And so in terms of the movie quality, he says, stories we tell makes, quote, documentary seem the most limiting of labels. Sarah Polly's brave quest to uncover her family's deepest secrets unfolds like a thriller one where the resolution is literally part of her DNA. It's an intimate story of truth, memory, and reconciliation, not just for Polly and her family, but also for astonished viewers. Polly's personal documentary is extraordinary in every way, from its postmodern structure to the raw emotion of its carefully revealed family secrets. Stories We Tell is as direct as a blood transfusion. It's a film of fact, remembrance, and forgiveness with no clear path. You just have to trust in Sarah Polly's steely determination and follow her relentless lens. So did you, I mean, and it's just, maybe this just triggered that is like, you know, she has this family she grew up with then she finds out someone else is her dad and she kind of creates relationships with those members of that side of the family. But I think it would have been interesting also to explore once this is all out in the open you know, even one scene, like, do these two families come together? 
You know, are, do they all get along? Do they spend holidays together? What is the relationship with all the surrounding characters, not just her? Right. Yeah, you do wonder about that. I mean, we we meet the wife of her biological father and his one daughter that she has has met with as well. And they all seem enthusiastic about embracing her as part of their family. But you're right. Where is the 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 bigger dynamic in there? Um, we don't really know. And and one of the big things in this film is how sort of open and, and generous her father, Michael, who raised her is about this whole situation. And he isn't angry. And in fact, he's as fascinated as she is. So, you know, do he and, and the biological father get along? The biological father seems a lot less interested in being part of that. So you're right. It's something that's not really explored. And then that's where I go back to like having, you know, maybe more than one person in the interview at one time. Imagine if you had Michael and Harry interviewed together, wouldn't it have been great to see that dynamic. Right. I mean, and maybe part of what she's trying to do is not manufacture conflict and for the sake of of uh, cinematic drama or whatever. And, and I understand that, that, again, something like that could seem like it's more exploitative. But but you're also right that there's a certain dynamic that's missing there. Yeah, well, what she did was record all of the interviews separately before she figured out the form of the documentary, right? So she kind of went and she interviewed, you know, her brother or one of her sisters. and then. She did the dad and then the other dad, whatever. So she had this all logged and then she put together the backbone. And I think maybe she stuck a little too much to that as, as opposed to like, now that I have this and I figure this out, let me go back and do more interviews in different ways. Uh, that said, we both like the movie. So, right. No, it yeah. is. It is still very good. And I mean, it's hard to criticize somebody for the form in which they present this like very, very personal, like yeah, how they want to reveal. <laughs> how dare you reveal to me? Who is your biological father in this way? Yeah. So um, there, there was a bit of criticism, and I thought I'd get a little of that, even though overwhelmingly the reviews were positive. So Stephen Witte in the Newark Star-Ledger said, Polly continues to grow as a director. The film has some subtle and very intuitive editing, yet it remains too much of an insider's story. Sarah Polly's relationship to the people she interviews isn't always made clear. Footage we accept as being real turns out, near the end of the movie, to have been faked. We remain the outsiders at a family get-together, never quite getting the jokes or the references. Polly is a good filmmaker, but in the end, stories we tell feels less like a film than a family album, and one best appreciated not by us, but by the Pollys still to come. That's a tough one for me. I'm not on board with that review there. And anyway, I've already explained why it doesn't bother me that you know, we had these reenactments and I feel like, I mean, she's basically saying, I wish she would tell this personal story in a less personal way. And I don't, that, I don't know one, how, I mean, I think what we're talking about is we want her to even tell it in a more personal way. So I just, uh, I'm not feeling it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like, other than our disagreement about the reenactments, I, I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying either. I just, wanted, you know, that perspective. I, I will say his criticism when she, he says her relationships to the people being interviewed isn't always clear. I think it mostly is made clear, but that it is also kind of not introduced clearly at the start. You know, she puts a title card with each person with their name, but just their first name and nothing about her relationship. And over time you get it. But one person, like, for example, I said, her biological father, his wife, 
is one of the interviewees. Maybe I missed something, but throughout, I was like, who is this person? And I wasn't sure, is she his wife? Is she his sister? She's clearly someone with a personal connection to him, but I wasn't sure who she was. And it was only looking at the credits that I connected who she was. So that is maybe a little frustrating, but it's also part of what Sarah Polly is doing where she's not just going to hold your hand through every little thing. Right. And I only connected that it was his wife when you said it was his wife. <laughs> right. OK, so I'm not the only one there. Um, but I mean, I will also say that at like film festivals and stuff, I have seen a lot of documentaries that really feel like someone's random ass home movies that they just threw together and put on the screen. And having watched movies like that, this movie is so much better and that making a personal story is is a great thing to do in a documentary. But I think you need to be able to structure it in a way that engages your audience. And that's what she does here. The editing in this film is fantastic. The way that it's paced, all of that is really, really good. And it really involves you, even though it's a story about these people that you've never met. Right. And I, I said, when I use the terms more personal, that's probably not right. It's probably other ways of telling the personal story in equally as personal terms. Like, so that's what we're talking about, just kind of enhancing what she, what on the track she's already on there. Yeah, but I mean, I don't disagree with you that that being more personal can be a good thing. And I think spe specificity is good. I don't want her, you know, she could have easily, instead of doing what she did, made a movie where it starts with her saying, hey, I learned that my biological father was not the man that I grew up thinking was my father. How interesting is that? Let's make a documentary about people who have met their biological parents or something. And that would have been like a boring news report. You know, she it, it, it's better because it's specific because she has personal investment in what she's doing. That we agree on, good sir. All right. So, I mean, I think we've we've gone over here that clearly we both had seen this movie before. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater um, or at least when it was released um, on home video right after it came out in the theater. Um, and because it was a big documentary that year that a lot of people were talking about, I'm um, really in 2013 by the time it got a commercial release here in the U.S. But um, was that when you saw it as well, Jason? No, this was definitely on my radar when it was theatrical. I was like, oh, what a cool looking, you know, indie doc. And um, I just it took me years to kind of just get around to it. And then I was really blown away by it the first time. And like I said, I don't think I had the same. It didn't resonate the same. I still like it a lot. I just think like the first time you hear this story for me anyway, is the the time where it has the most emotional impact. Right. And I can understand that. But, you know, like I said, for me, it was strangely the opposite. But I liked it both times. Definitely. So, Dave, had you seen this before? I had not. Um, I had heard great things about it. Uh, but yeah, no, this is my first time and I liked it. Yeah. All right. Cool. And Jason, um, you had not seen any Sarah Pauly films before this, right? This yeah, no, this is the, uh, I mean, I've seen movies she's acted in, of course. Right, right, but, but films that she's directed. Right, so, you know, there's there's only three others, right? There's, right. Uh, there's uh, Away From Her was her first one, I think, and then Take This Waltz, and then at the time of recording, um, for some reason, uh, her current film, Women Talking, is nominated both for Best Picture and Best Screenplay, and... I'm not trying to dog that movie, but I feel like this new woke Oscars is sometimes a little too woke with what they're nominating. Like, I don't see how it gets either of those nominations. I wasn't a fan of that movie either, but I think it's a crutch to say that 
quote, wokeness is the reason <laughs> for these things being nominated. It's the same with the sight and sound list that we talked about extensively last season related to Tokyo Story. But that's maybe something to talk about for the legacy. Yeah, um, I would like your opinion because like, I don't know why this got in. I mean, the, the reason it got in was because a bunch of people thought it was really good and we didn't. And that is the end of the, the story. Did, did they? Did they, Josh? Yes, they did. Hmm, anyway, because a bunch of people thought the Woman King was really good and that didn't get in. So you want to get into that? I, I mean, <laughs> there are a number like it's a numbers game. It's statistically more people voted hmm. for this one than voted for that one. And that was why hmm. this was nominated and that wasn't. That's interesting. What, what we're woke on and what we're not woke on or yeah. what people liked more passionately <laughs> than they liked other things. You're saying more people were passionate about women talking than the Woman King. I'm saying more people in the Academy voted for women talking on a higher level than they voted for the woman King. And yes, that's how nominations I understand work. how the nominations work. <laughs> I'm talking about thought, the subtext of the nominations. I don't take it for the face value that it is. I, I think, yes, that uh, more people liked women talking at a higher level amongst all the movies that were released this year than people who liked The Woman King at that level because of ranked choice voting, which I believe is how the nominations work. Um, I, I, I think to like categorize levels of wokeness is missing the entire point of all of this. And I'm shocked that you, a critic, would defend an awards body. That's just so crazy. I'm not this. defending again. I didn't like women talking, nor in fact, did I like the woman King. I'm not saying that these are movies that are the best of the year. I'm not saying they're my favorites. I'm not saying that they're better than other movies that weren't nominated. I'm saying that I am willing to believe that the people who voted for them genuinely liked them. That's all. I thought she said was better than both of those movies. So. I didn't see she said. <laughs> so anyway, this is way, way Ooh, off topic. Boy, here, but, that got uh, heated. We're no, just I mean, a bunch of men talking. Who wants are. that? That's, that's the new title of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Men talking. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're going to be huge in Bohemian growth. <laughs> that new title. <laughs> Getting back to stories we tell, uh, is there anything else on the background of this film you want to talk about? Um, yeah, Josh, didn't it? When uh, uh, the Toronto Film Festival named it one of the top 10 Canadian films of all time. Let's talk about that, Josh. What are your top 10 Canadian films of all time? I don't know. Maybe another movie Sarah, Sarah Polly was in, The Sweet Hereafter. Isn't she in that? And uh, that Adam Agoyan film? That's a really good Canadian movie. Yeah. Or I mean, do every David Cronenberg movie? I don't know. We do have another Canadian movie coming up later in this season. Hint, hint. We already but, uh, talked about a Canadian movie earlier in this season. I guess this is a big Canadian season yeah. for us. Oh, I don't wow. even remember what that was. It's anti antiviral, the Brandon uh, yeah. film. What a what a trend. Canada's yes. finally breaking through in 2012. Uh this has a 94% score on Rotten Tomatoes. And I never bring up a Rotten Tomatoes score, but like that's uh, that one jumped out at me at as high as it is. Right. And like I said, you know, looking for that review that was not positive or not entirely positive, that was a rare outlier, really. The vast majority of critics thought this movie was fantastic. It won a ton of uh, awards from like critics groups and stuff like that, even if it didn't get the Oscar nomination. So I didn't feel like we needed to run through all of those, but it certainly was heavily awarded by various bodies, including the Toronto Film Festival. And Josh, I don't mean to diminish what you were saying. Maybe you're right on that. I just disagree with this getting into those categories. 
All right. Well, not we'll talk, this, the uh, women talk, women talking. We can maybe bring that up later again. But for now, we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on stories we tell. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012, we are talking about our documentary pick, which is Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell. And I feel like we've, we've already gotten a lot of criticisms of this film, but really, we should say that we, we both really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a very good film. Yeah, I really do like it. Michael is a captivating uh, guide throughout. I mean, on screen, obviously, Sarah Polly is our guide off screen here. Um, so that's one good thing about it. Um, we already talked about the pacing and kind of how she leads us in one direction. They all thought that their father would might have been this actor, Jeff. And then it turns out that it was this producer, Harry, that she met while uh, her the woman's name was Diane. That was her mom while she was away doing a play. But they also did a very good job of setting the relationship both the love story and the mundaneness that followed of Diane and Michael to get to that point where she did have an affair and why Michael wasn't upset with her for having an affair. Right. I mean, she spends a long time before we even really meet Harry or learn anything about who he is. She really gives us a sense of her own family. She talks about her parents and how they met that Diane, uh, that they were in the, this Play together, or Diane was in, uh, saw him in a play, and then later they were in a play together, and so they were both actors in like this Toronto theater scene. That uh, you know, that's how they kind of came in contact with each other. And Michael talks a lot about what he saw in her and what she saw in him. And then you know, the 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 kids seem to have a lot of really remarkable. I feel like more insight than a lot of people have into the relationship of their own parents. You know, so um, that that was that was really good as well. And I think even before you get to the the quote twist or before you even know that there might be a twist, it's a really engaging story just about her unique family and all of the personalities are everyone she talks to. All of her siblings are really charismatic. Uh, at least one of them is on another actor as well. And so um, it's yeah, it's absolutely engaging on a personal level, even at that point. I also like the relationships like you're saying with these other characters, how they relate to their parents and, you know, what they see in their parents. And after Diane dies, I think one of the most emotionally effective bits of the movie is talking about how Michael leaned on Sarah to like, kind of, who was just a kid at the time, you know, to help him get through that period and how close they were and how he was able to um, take something so tragic and like, build something like so beautiful out of it. Right. I mean, their relationship and and another thing that that he talks about there about how close they were during that period. And clearly they're not quite as close anymore. And we don't necessarily know all the reasons for that yet. But but there's a sort of wistfulness and a sort of regret to that as well. I think that comes across, um, even though they're they're clearly close enough for her to engage him in participating in this documentary. Clearly, she's close enough with everyone in her family for that. There's no indication, at least on camera, of any of these people being reluctant to participate or to to reveal all the things that they reveal. They all seem to be fully on board, really, uh, other than Harry, the biological father, toward the end a little bit. But e even when he expresses his own frustrations, he's never, he's not walking out. He's never saying he doesn't want to participate in the film or anything. So 
you know, clearly all these people are very, very open in general. Isn't it interesting that the plays that they were doing at the time or the films that they were producing or watching at the time mimicked what was going on in their lives and how they were able to relate that to their romantic stories in real life to what they were doing artistically at those moments. Right. And I think maybe part of that comes from the fact that, like you said, this is a family of artists to varying degrees. And much like Sarah Pauly in making this film, I think they all probably have this internal sense of how their lives are structured as narratives. I, I agree. I mean, you know, um, I, I think that I get that I, uh, maybe more when I was younger, but like, you know, as a writer, whatever, a comedian, hopeful fil filmmaker, whatever, like you're always like, I always used to be like, oh, this is probably a bad situation to put myself in personally, but I'll get something good out of it, you know, from a content point of view. Yeah, I mean, so, I, and I'm not saying they did that, but I'm just saying you do get caught up in the in the cinematic nature of your own life sometimes. Oh, no, totally. And I know that you and I have had conversations like that where you're talking about some some unfortunate situation and saying, well, I'll get a good joke out of this or something. And I mean, if you talk about your personal life on stage, like I know that you do, then then that is something to think about. And I'm thinking about it right now. All right. Um, right. Hey, Josh, <laughs> Dave, Bone of Air, Skinny Love. Come on. Classic, right? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know that song, but I, like I don't really know their albums. But <laughs> there's the music not, in here. it's not a they. This is amazing to me because Josh and I talked the other day, and uh -huh. I was like, man, they got she. You know, I love how she uses the Bon Iver song because I love Bon Iver. And uh, Josh was like, I don't I don't even know the song, and I'm like, what world? What different world was I living living in where like Bon Iver was such a big presence in that scene, and that you guys don't even know it? I thought like Bon Iver was this huge star. And it's yeah. just me and my bunch of indie nerd friends, I guess, or whatnot. He so. is, he, yes, uh, is good. Like Justin always, Vernon. Yeah, yeah, I always, I always like all the Bon Iver songs that I hear. I just have never felt the need to seek it out and like listen to the albums or anything. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm saying, Jason, that you're not wrong. That that Bon Iver is is a famous musician or whatever. I just am not. <laughs> all familiar. right, I'm just not familiar with his music. It's not the kind of music that I listen to, and so watching this film when that song came up i wasn't like oh hey it's that song cool that she used that song i didn't even notice it i mean it, it, the music was good it, it fit or whatever but it was all stuff i wasn't familiar with well, well so i guess what i'm saying on that point is like i am a fan of bonavera and i think like you know that was the song that probably most fans maybe got or you know that was the most mainstream song off that first album that kind mm -hmm. of broke him which, of course, was not the first album. It was the fifth album. But, you know, that's the, the narrative. The first one right? that, that made it out into the world. Yeah. Speaking of um, speaking of artists letting life dictate their art, that that album was, uh, you know, his girlfriend broke up with him. And then he went into this cabin in the woods of Wisconsin and just wrote this whole breakup album that like broke up. But anyway, Skinny Love was one of those songs that was so trendy and hot on like that indie world. You could see like 17 movies probably using it right but i was just i guess why i liked it wasn't like oh they picked a song that i liked but i thought it was really effective usage of that song in this film yeah i mean i and i'm not disagreeing with you about that i think all of her choices here aesthetically work i mean and as much as i was harping on disliking the the sort of obfuscation that goes on in the uh the reenactments one of the reasons that that obfuscation works 
is because she's incredibly good at recreating what looks like genuine home movies from like the 1970s and 1980s. Yeah, you use the word wistful. I think she gets that really across really well. So, you know, Josh, how many of her movies have you seen besides this? All of them? I've seen all of them. And uh, I mean, I, I saw away from her in the theater and that's from 2006. So it's obviously been quite some time. But I remember thinking that that movie was was very good. It was highly acclaimed. It's a tough movie to watch and it didn't really seem like something I felt like revisiting. Um, I didn't much care for Take This Waltz, um, which is about uh, a, adultery and and I believe is based on a novel, but maybe was also partially at least influenced by things that she was learning about right. her own life. Um, yeah. I thought that movie was way too self-serious um, and it didn't really work for me. And as as we uh, discussed already, I wasn't particularly keen on women talking. So, I mean, I think this is definitely her best film. And and I don't know, you know, it's hard to recreate something like this. I'm sure she doesn't have any other giant family secrets to make movies about. But I wonder if she'd ever have an inclination to make some other kind of personal documentary. I'm sure there's other things. You know, she has three children now. I'm sure there's other things going on in her life that maybe she would have something uh, that she would want to share about. And I'd be curious to see that. I definitely think this is her best work. Yeah. So that's why I was bringing it up, because I do. I like this better than the other movie I saw from her. And I would like to see her explore the documentary space some more. I don't think it has to be personal. I think she's obviously clearly talented enough to tell good stories, no matter what she attempts to in this space. But I've been listening to a lot of interviews with her because of women talking. And uh, she did a great interview on script notes where of course she had starred in go john august's uh first oh you're co-starring uh, go film. jason that's awesome right. <laughs> yeah that's right she and i co-starred together in go that's right thank you josh <laughs> but what happened why she's been out of the spotlight she's been writing for a long time but i think she's she suffered such a severe concussion somehow that she wasn't able to really function day to day as she was before, right? Like bright lights would bother her or she would get tired. And every doctor that she saw would say to her like, well, yeah, this is your new life. Get used to it. Right. And then she went to one doctor in Pittsburgh and like, what were all these doctors would be like, um, she goes, do you think I'll ever make another movie? And they're like, no, but it's a good goal to have. Right. Like this other doctor went the other exact other way. And she's like, do you think I could ever make another movie? And he's like, well, you're never going to have a normal life if you don't. So go do it, you know? And like, he, I think she was saying run towards the fear is what this doctor kept saying. So that seems to be the personal issue that keeps coming up in all of her interviews right now. So maybe that's the subject she tackles. Um, I, I think women talking while we didn't like it seems to have been very freeing for her to showcase that she's able to do these things again. And make movies on the terms that she wants to make them. And also now she's back in the spotlight as a director here. So maybe we will see more of her. Also, dude, I know she's not doing it, but like uh, we talked about it in Baron Munchausen. She's a good actress. Like it would be great to see her act again too, you know? So Absolutely. I mean, I remember, and we maybe talked about this in Baron Munchausen, which of course is a movie that she made as a child. I remember me as a child watching her as Ramona Quimby on the right. PBS series adaptation of those books and and just absolutely I mean I loved those books and I loved that version of them I loved her performance as Ramona and yeah she's a great actor and even before those health problems that you're talking about she seemed 
pretty adamant about not acting anymore, that she was all in on filmmaking, which clearly she's also good at. But it is a shame. And I don't know if she would ever take a role, even a small role in a film that she directed. I mean, she's not done that. I don't think she's acted in, you know, maybe 15 years or something like that. So, um, I, I, you know, obviously she should, she should not be pressured to do something that she is not interested in doing, but, um, I, I agree that it is a bit of a loss. Um, but all that stuff you're talking about is really fascinating, um, in terms of her, her life experiences over the last decade. And, and I agree with you that I think any of that could be fodder for a really interesting documentary film if she was so inclined to do so, or, or even potentially a fiction film that drew from her own experiences in some way. Yeah. I wonder, you know, with, look, I don't want to beat up on women talking. I just didn't think it was a best picture. Not like Jason beats up on women who talk, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is sadly less, um, violent than what the men do to the women in the, in in the that movie. film. Yes. Right. I'm yes. glad that you were so. less violent than the men in that film. <laughs> than the, than the raping yeah, yeah. men in the yes. movie. I was making a joke, Josh. Yes, clearly. I, so, yeah. um, so um, w- look, women talking has some great sweeping shots in there and it's hard to make just uh, an entire movie, no matter who it is of people in one room, just talking the whole time. Right. You know? So yeah. Um, anyway, I, um, she's technically, a very good director. So I would like to see her do something with a bigger breath, you know, with more space. And, um, I, you use the word self-serious. That is something that I feel like I see in all of her interviews and her films. Like I I want a little more sense of humor, like obviously women talking, not a funny movie. Right. But, you know, um, you know, I think you were saying that about take this waltz and like, I'd like to see a little more humor injected into some of her stuff. Right. And I think going back to this film, which is obviously about a very heavy subject and something that is 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 personal to everyone involved and has affected their lives deeply. There is humor here. There is playfulness here. I mean, just the fact that she gets her father, she gets Michael to to narrate the story of his own wife having had an affair and had a child outside of their marriage is sort of cheeky, you know, and, and he himself is a playful figure, Michael. And so not that this movie is like laugh out loud funny in any way, but I think it does have more of a sense of humor that she wants to show maybe that she can have a sense of humor about all this crazy stuff that happened to her. And that's something that isn't really present in her other films. And they they even talk about how the whole family would make jokes about this for the years preceding the revelation. And and obviously, like her brother makes some good jokes about it in the interviews and everything. So, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Like she's 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 so talented on so many levels in that idea. Like this is a weird thing to say in that idea of like run towards the fear. Like it'd be great to see her do something so far out of the box of what we would expect from her. Um, that saying comfort zone per se, but just something so unexpected from her. It would be great to see her just tackle uh, a totally different type of project. Yeah. I mean, but I, I think, you know, again, to, br- to bring it back to this, this is, this is her working toward all of her strengths, whether she realized it or not when she was embarking on this project, where, like you said, she started without really knowing what form it would take everything that she's really good at is is funneled through this film both documentary wise and drama wise again those reenactments if this had been a movie a fiction movie set 
in the 70s and 80s that looked like those reenactments, I would feel like, wow, what a really effective period piece. Like she really captures that time incredibly well and makes it really convincing. Yeah, I agree. I Like I said, I would love for her to go and do another documentary. Um, and I'm sure when she listens to this, she's going to really take that into account. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. She's busy uh, listening to a lot of podcasts about uh, about her film. Um, Men talking about women talking. Right. (laughs) That's that's surely what she was hoping for when making that film. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Is is there anything else specific about stories we tell that you like or that you want to shout out that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, I'm I'm glad she's Canadian, Josh. It's always nice for me to see uh, uh, the, the setting of Canada and how she utilizes it. I did like speaking of Canada, the discussions of the differences between people live in, who live in Toronto and people who live in Montreal. I feel like something that we as Americans would not really think about. We think right. of Canadians as this like monolithic, you know, entity or whatever. Yeah, they say like Toronto is all like serious and business and in Montreal, it's more like let your freak flag fly, baby. <laughs> right. It's like. Like, uh, you know, I don't know what we would have, you know, L.A. versus San Francisco or something like that, that we might talk about here in the U.S., but we don't think about. We just think of Canadians as is one kind of thing. Right. Well, we're, you know, generalizers. Yeah, we're 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 bigots against Canada. We're, we're celebrating Canada this season, as we said. Yeah, this is our this is our season of love for Canada. In fact, I wanted you to watch one of. The movie is Harry Produced, uh, which was nominated for a Golden Globe in like 1976 as part of research for this film. I looked that up. Not that I necessarily would have had time to watch it, but it doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere or or really widely available, unfortunately. So um, uh, didn't get oh well. a chance for that. But um, I, for research, watched uh, all 11 seasons of Letter Kenny. <laughs> yes, that is that's clearly what you did just for this podcast. You do that for every episode, don't you? It's weird. It's so weird. Should we rate this, Josh? Yeah, let's five, let's let's go. Five um mistaken fathers. Sure. Let's uh, or five let's, biological dads. Yeah, what do you want to do? Yeah, yeah. By I mean, he doesn't no one views this as a mistake. And it's not mistaken, but yeah. I don't mean mistake like that. I mean like someone I mistook for my biological sure, father. True. So. True. Yeah. So five, five fathers of some type. Yeah, five dads, no matter what you uh, how you want to do it. It's three and a half for me. First watch was a four. Um, I know we've been somewhat critical throughout, uh, but I think it's weird because um, we are both so uh, enamored with her talent that we don't want that to escape this conversation. Three and a half, uh, very much recommend you watch this movie. Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe one of the reasons why we're critical in certain areas is because she's so talented and because she does so much really well here that it's like little things that could almost have taken it slightly to the next level. But it is a really good film. You haven't seen it. We've spoiled it for you. But my opinion, unlike Jason's, is that even with the spoiling, it's still a really, really rich experience. I give it three and a half dads out of five now. And that's for me, the opposite direction. I only gave it three when I first saw it. I liked it more this time, um, but I'm going to agree with you on the rating. So uh, Dave, how would you rate this? I'm also going three and a half along with you guys. If I could just say real quick, because uh, when you guys were kind of going back and forth on the effectiveness of the, the reenactments being staged and like obscuring that when, when the credits rolled on this movie, like I almost felt like that, 
was the point? Like to me, it was like, like almost like an experimental form of documentary. Like, can we still be as emotionally effective when that, that is dropped? That hit me more than the revelation of the dad. Like to me, like that was the, the crux of the film. So did you not realize during the scenes where it pulls back and shows them filming the reenactments that that was what was going on? No, that's when I when I realized it. And I'm like, oh, OK. And like, you know, it kind of hung over the film more so than the reveal of the dad. Oh, OK. I thought you meant like you didn't yeah. understand it until the credits rolled. No, no. OK. I mean, which yeah. is possible. Josh, we yeah. really missed the opportunity here with none of us giving it two. So I could have referenced my two dads. The- sitcom from the 80s with Paul Reiser. But anyway, let's, and Stacey Keenan, we'll come back for act three of Stories We Tell. (laughs) We'll talk about the legacy of Stories We Tell. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. We're talking about Sarah Pauly's stories we tell in this episode of our season on the films of 2012. And I feel like we've we've talked a lot already about Sarah Pauly's career the arc of her career. Um, as we noted, this was the the third film that she directed, and then she did not direct another film for a decade until Women Talking in 2022. She did write- Because of her health issues. Right, because of her health issues. Um, she did write, but not direct, the miniseries uh, Alias Grace on Netflix in 2017, which is based on a Margaret Atwood book that is quoted at the very beginning of Stories We Tell. I was trying to watch that, actually, because, you know, I like those uh, hot, limited series about crime and such. And uh, that is not available for streaming here in the States. Oh, that's crazy. That was a Netflix original, I believe. I reviewed it when it came out. So that's uh, Netflix uh, being shady there, taking off their content. Well, now I'm just going to double look it up to make sure I'm not wrong. But I mean, I, I believe it. It might have been like licensed from a Canadian broadcaster or something. Right. But I think it was labeled a Netflix original here in the U.S. Josh, as I have said, I am completely wrong. And it is on Netflix and uh, I should have watched it. So. Definitely not editing that out. That's <laughs> that's fine. You don't have to. I was wrong. I thought I couldn't watch it. And it uh, turns out I could. And I'm just a dumb man. Well, I will say Dude, that my point, man, my point about Netflix being shady still stands, though. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've deleted other things. I did see that. I Like I said, I reviewed it when it came out, and I was excited for it. But uh, it got a lot of really good reviews. But I was, I believe, kind of disappointed in it. It stars uh, Sarah Gadon, who we just, speaking of Canadians, who we just yeah. talked about as one of the stars of Antiviral. So yeah. uh, the Canadians yeah. are everywhere this season. But um, Jason, do you want to trash women talking anymore? Josh, I don't I don't even trash it. I gave it two and a half out of five on uh, on Letterboxd where you could find me at Gopher Jason. I just don't think it's a best picture nominee. And I don't think it's the most amazing screenplay I've ever seen either. I don't know. I just the movie I thought like not that this is podcast is about that. Like you hit that note and then it just stayed at that note the whole time to me. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, we may disagree on the uh, method by which it was nominated for Oscars, but I agree with you that I was disappointed. I didn't think it was a very good movie. Also, visually, it has this weirdly like drab look, which I assume was on purpose, maybe to reflect the plain look of the uh, the characters or whatever, but just made it kind of just look ugly and and dingy. And that I found distracting. And uh, yeah, I'm with you. It's kind of one note 
um, I was looking forward to it and I was hoping to like it a lot. I was assuming that I would like it and it just was a big disappointment to me. Yeah. And um, do you think that is because you're a man? Well, clearly. <laughs> Look, let's instead talk about other family documentaries with strange dynamics that are worth watching. I put down three um, of my favorites, Josh, which yeah. um, uh, three identical strangers about the triplets who were all adopted into different families and didn't know that they were triplets and then found each other basically on a whim after they grew up. And that's that was wonderful until it became very depressing, you know, and we learned how terrible people are which yet again uh not those three guys but what the system did to those three guys uh the wolf pack about these two parents who wouldn't let their kids out of the house so these kids just made reenactments uh of their favorite movies in the house you know um and and you know that was a big sensation a few years ago and um gray gardens one of the all-time great documentaries about these two rich uh kennedy cousins living in the dying days of uh, uh, the glorious Hamptons, not that the, the Hamptons have died, but this section and this area and this house, which needs to be cleaned uh, and just kind of living in the past in the present. Yeah, I still haven't seen Grey Gardens, which uh, maybe uh, we'll rectify soon. <laughs> um, but um, I, I'm with you. Three Identical Strangers is also one of those documentaries with a twist that I find kind of annoying now. I did like that movie, though quite a bit. And the Wolfpack as well is really good. I noted a couple that I liked uh, a lot. Uh, Twinsters, which is a movie like this, where the filmmaker herself is discovering things about her parenthood. She is someone who she was adopted from Korea and she discovers that she had a twin who was also adopted and, and then they meet each other. And it, it deals with some serious, uh, you know, darker questions but unlike three identical strangers it it is overall like a very positive happy celebration of these people finding each other um and i also thought about dick johnson is dead uh kirsten johnson's film recently especially with the way that she incorporates her own father and has him do these like reenactments of things from his own life um in order to process kind of their relationship and i feel like that's a lot similar to what sarah polly does with with michael polly in this film yeah, none of us watched Senior yet, the Robert Downey Jr. movie about his father that I bet is kind of along those lines as well. Dave, any favorites? Three Identical Strangers would have been mine. Uh, yeah, it's great. And I think, isn't Ben Stiller making like a limited series out of it now? Yeah, he is. And I think he's supposed to star, though, as the twins, which he seems way he, too old for. He seems old, but he does look like those guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um. I, you know, I wonder, Jason, about, you know, the documentaries with twists, which I feel like was maybe at the time that this film came out and some others, like when it was a newer thing, it was yeah. something that was more effective that people were like, oh, wow, you know, you have to watch this movie because it's got this crazy story and the way that it unfolds. Um, I remember, I don't know if you've seen Dear Zachary, but that was one. I mean, that's a really horrifying story, but that was one where they really build on the idea of the twist and they like really invest you emotionally in someone only to like really like gut punch you with what happened to that person. And that was a movie that was a huge sensation that I thought was a bit overly manipulative. I didn't watch that specifically because of how just uh, difficult I heard it was to watch and the reveals are and just how it gets you 
uh, like that emotionally. But, you know, we, we've talked about The Imposter probably a few times. Obviously, the Paradise Lost series has some twists that we've talked about before, you know, so. Yeah, but I feel like the Paradise Lost series is about the filmmakers sort of discovering more information as the series goes on. Whereas what bugs okay. me is when a documentary starts with like the filmmaker has all the information, but they're going to withhold it from the audience for the sake of a big surprise. Well, we knew that like with The Imposter and I love I think The Imposter is a great movie, right? So. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that I think that probably became very popular with like Catfish and everything like that. Right. And I haven't seen Catfish. I mean, a couple more recent ones that I thought of that. that Spoiler I, alert. It's not who you think it is <laughs> on the Internet. Um, <laughs> movies that I that annoyed me that I didn't like, um, even though inherently maybe the story, like the actual events are interesting. But the way it unfolds, um, I think, you know, these are probably both Netflix original films, uh, Misha and the Wolves, which is about this woman who wrote a memoir claiming to be a Holocaust survivor as a child and having uh, lived in like the woods with wolves when she ran away from a concentration camp. And it turned out to all that she made it all up. Um, and again, you don't learn that right away in the film. It takes a while. Uh, and a, another film called Tell Me Who I Am, which is about these uh, twins. And one of them is in a, uh, a motorcycle or car accident and gets amnesia and has to sort of like relearn from his twin all about their background. And that's fascinating in and of itself. But again, the movie withholds that what he is eventually relearning is the horrifying abuse that they suffered as children and mm -hmm. that we get as like a big twist. And, and so both of those movies, again, inherently the events that they're talking about are interesting, but the way they're presented really annoyed me. Yeah, Josh, am I equating Tell Me Who I Am with Three Identical Strangers? Because I remember that as an element of that as well, but maybe I'm confusing the two. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, in tell me who I am, it's, they're not adopted. They're, they're twins who grew up together with their parents and the, the, the twin who is in this, this accident and, and loses his memory has basically lost the memory of being abused by their parents. Right. Um, and three identical strangers, they are all adopted by different families. And, and I don't believe that they were abused per se. The abuse is more of the the system. The system, that, right? That right. deliberately so separated the them. Yeah. yeah. So it's a different. Yeah. It's, it's people yes. being horrible in different ways. <laughs> yeah. Really. So yeah. I was right. So I was right about that. Yeah. yeah. So hey, how good. how about the amazing Jonathan documentary? That's another one that kind of like oh. really plays with the form and all that. You know. And that's one where like he teases like it's and it's a bunch of nothing that he's teasing i really dislike that movie yeah oh, what about her. there was the one about the woman who claimed to be in the towers in 9 11 and then they reveal that she wasn't did you ever see that one no i don't know that one uh, is that the yeah. george santos story <laughs> steve uh ran is easy or whatever you know so uh no i don't know so i don't know there's uh you, you know josh you do make a point that like like when the imposter, when I first saw the imposter, um, it was like, whoa, this is so crazy and everything. And now, like, you know, everything on Netflix is like, whoa, this is so crazy. <laughs> right. You know, so right. they, they are kind of pushing into that territory a lot. Yeah, I think that's the problem. I think that's too. Another thing is that if Sarah Polly was trying to make this now, Netflix would probably try to get her to make it like a six part series or whatever. Right. And, and that would, would be not good. No, it would be much worse. Um, yeah. So going back to the, the people in this film, I mean, as, as we said, her family, they're, they're all artists. So in addition to being documentary subjects, a lot of the people in this film are in the film industry themselves. 
Um, Michael Polly, I thought it was interesting. Michael Polly and Harry Gulkin, her, her two dads, uh, they both died in 2018. So that must have been a very, very rough year for Jeez. Sarah Polly. Uh, Michael Polly was an actor. And it, Harry Gulkin, as you said, produced, including the, the first uh, Canadian film nominated for an Oscar. But I, I think his producing career ended in the 80s. So he wasn't working um, after this film was made. Um, her older brother, John, is a, is a casting director, still works very prolifically as a casting director, including on her films. He was the casting director of Women Talking. And he had that business with the mom, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. He kind of took that over, it sounds like, after the mom passed away. Tom Butler, I did recognize in this film. He's one of the co-stars in the play that uh, Diane performed where she went to Montreal and had this affair. And he's he's not the one, uh, Jeff, who they speculate might be Sarah's father, but he's another co-star. And I definitely recognized him. He's an incredibly prolific character actor in a ton of things still working heavily today. And one thing I found kind of interesting that I wondered about with my frustration with the reenactments that for me as a viewer, I didn't recognize any of those actors in the reenactments, which is part of why you can kind of believe that they're real. But reading that review from the Toronto Star, it mentions Rebecca Jenkins, who plays Diane in the right. reenactments, as a, as a famous actor in Canada. So I feel like maybe Canadian viewers would have uh, sort of caught on Known to that earlier. That you didn't. Right. Yeah. Well, Josh, that's what you get for not being Canadian. It's true. That's the theme here that uh, the Canadians are best, really. So uh, and she she also continues to work as an actor, uh, mainly in in Canadian uh, TV and film. So those are the figures that I wrote down. Any other people that you want to talk about here? Uh, Sarah Polly, the director, was um, <laughs> a prolific actress and now director. Yes, writer. we have talked about that indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wrote a memoir recently, uh, recently-ish, that I, we probably talked about this in our Baron Munchausen episode, where she talked about a lot of her experiences as a child actor, including her experience on the making of, of Baron Munchausen. Right. And she, we talked about that. She and Terry Gilliam have engaged and come to some sort of detente about it, where they don't agree, but seem to have mutual respect for each other. Right, right. And she had, I mean, and I wonder if some of the experiences that she recounts in that book are part of the reason why she's not really interested in being an actor anymore. Um, but I agree that it's a shame. I think especially if she were to act in one of her own projects and have full control over it, you know, maybe she could find enjoyment in it again. Right. Well, with, with uh, women talking in the interview, she was talking about how, you know, she had 10 hour days on set and there were breaks and mental health breaks if you needed it. And I think she just wants to do it in a more healthy way than traditional filmmaking often leads to. And I think that's great. I, I hope she's able to continue to do that and maybe make a movie that uh, pleases these two men here, which is the yeah. most important thing. I, on the other hand, want um, more gulag-like situations where people are working 18 to 20 hour days and have no mental health breaks, no physical health breaks. Remember, you're there for our enjoyment. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> if you're thinking of uh, participating in a film that Jason directs. <laughs> yeah, so fun. So fund my movie. No, yeah. I'm 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 clearly kidding, and it's sad that I have to say these things out loud. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that is stories we tell, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Tell us your story on uh, online and on social media. Uh, unless it's boring, I don't want to hear it then. All right, <laughs> but you can still engage with us. 
We're at AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all of those socials. You can find EatThisComedy.com or EatThisComedy on Instagram. Uh, I have some old stuff at JoshBellHatesEverything.com. I'm also at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter and on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what are we talking about in our next episode? Josh, is it your pick? It's my pick. Well, Josh, then why don't you tell us what we're talking about on the next episode? Uh, my pick is the sci-fi-ish, I guess we could say, indie film from Zal Batman Lee and Britt Marling. It is called Sound of My Voice. So tune in next time for that. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.